Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program. Yes, we're here, even over the Christmas break, uh, to defend and to promote public education. And we certainly need to because the, uh, the winds of change, rapid change and disastrous change, are blowing from the United States. Now, last week uh, we did have a press release, a 686, which I read, and it's on our website at www.adogs.info. And it was about the extraordinary rorts that we have been subjected to as taxpayers here in Australia by the privatisation of our taxation system, of our TAFE system. But over in the United States, they are looking at the wholesale privatisation or overtaking of their public tertiary, secondary and elementary school system by those who regard education as a business or, as we'll hear a bit later, a biz knows. Uh, now, on the uh, Diana Ravitch website, there's some, or her blog, there's some very interesting material about what is going to happen now that Betsy DeVos is the President-elect Donald Trump's nominee for the United States Secretary of Education. And this went up on Christmas Day, December the 25th. America would do well to learn all it can about this lady and about DeVos's influence in the privatisation of public education in Michigan, particularly the educational privatisation Petri dish of Detroit. Now, she has reproduced excerpts from a rather extensive December 23rd, 2016 Truth Out article. And it's called The Great Unwinding of Public Education, Detroit and DeVos. And it's written by a retired professor and writer, Joseph Natalie, about the effects of gentrifying investors seeking to put price tags on what was previously the public domain. And DeVos is a key player in these privatisation games. And the excerpts illustrate how the games work. And America and Australia needs to pay attention. Now, I've been paying attention to this for some time since uh, a professor at Sydney University 
Sherrington, uh, Professor Sherrington, was alert, trying to alert people to charter schools and the uh, movements in Australia to privatisation some time ago. But in what you hear today, listeners, there's actually nothing new about or any of this, particularly in Australia, because the Catholic Church and the other churches have been privatising and getting public money to privatise education for the last 50 years. And the accountability, or sorry, the lack of accountability, particularly of the Catholic Education Office, has in fact been a cancer in the body politic for more than half a century, but nobody in this country wants to talk about it. They have decided that they will now talk about the abuse of children, but in fact there has been a wholesale abuse of children in an education system which has been substantially privatised in our country for some time and we're now paying the price on the international stage and people are holding up holding up their hands. And yet somebody like Kevin Donnelly is writing in The Australian about how terrible our public schools still are. So let's go back to America. Bankruptcy following the collapse of the jobs that fueled the motor city of Detroit has exposed Detroit to the dynamics described by Naomi Klein in the shock doctrine. A crisis, either arranged or accidental, precipitates a rush to recuperation. And lobbyists of wealthy investors petition a government that wealthy investors have put in place. A much-quoted checks and balances security shield for democratic governments is thus easily disarmed. And this happened in Australia in 1969 when they gave state aid to private schools. But America until recently has not been giving money to private schools. The uh, Supreme Court in America held up the process by saying that state aid for private religious schools contravened the First Amendment. But things are changing in America. The most startling, dire and urgent the crisis, and haven't been, people been talking about a crisis in education in Australia for the last 30 or 40 years, the greater the rush to a saving privatisation When statistics do not show charter schools to be better places for learning than public schools, privatisers instead then focus on appearances. And we have this in Australia, dear listeners, because there is absolutely no evidence that private schools do a better job than public schools in Australia. In fact, they do a worse job when you look at the inequalities, social inequalities that they create. But... Given the background of the children when allowances are made for this, the private schools for all the money that is poured into them by both parents and governments are not doing a better job than the public schools in this country. But weakening public education to the point that privatisation looks like a rescue is accomplished by funding that is decreased when tax funds are siphoned off to for-profit charter schools. It's also inequitably allocated, and when you allocate based on property ownership, you are at once solidifying the gap 
between rich and poor and most grievously extending that gap into the future. So America, through its charter schools, is now doing what Australia has been doing by uh, pouring money into religious private schools for the last 50 years. And the Americans are not necessarily happy about this. Now, alongside this economic and political strategy, there is a deft mind game aimed at parents that pushes them towards these charter schools in America because they must do it, they feel, if they want the best for their kids. And haven't we seen this in the last 50 years in Australia? This framing, however, erroneously implies that privatised schools result in a higher level of learning than public schools. And in truth, these profit-seeking schools specialise in marketing and branding strategies, as well as the aura of the new millennial innovation. We have internalised the mantra that all human endeavours that are placed in the hands of private enterprise succeed whereas those run by the government not only do poorly but also rob freedom-loving people in the United States of their freedom. And of course Australians, many of them, have holus bolus accepted this strange mantra that the market is laid up in heaven and must not be uh, questioned in this country. Privatisation is being presented the saviour here is not just a Detroit thing. Giving everything public over to market forces, that is market rule, is a faith that has spread across the United States and unfortunately it is being pushed at us here in Australia. And profit-making on education, like profit-making in healthcare, prisons and warfare, and here in Australia we have it on refugees on Manus Island, Profit-making is normalised by many in our society. The smearing of a profession of teaching that is both shabbily compensated and appreciated in both the United States and Australia goes by without notice in this process, as does the undervaluation of firefighters, postal and sanitation workers, bound as they are in a salary service to the community and not in making money through the mere position of money itself. Now, DeVos has all of the required affiliations uh, that are required to impose charter schools on the rest of America. She has ties to the religious right. She has ties to hedge funds and free market think tanks. She embraces the sacred memes of free to choose and privatise. She has a profit-driven missionary zeal. She has a powerful Michigan family's hold on the legislature and the gift of never having entered a public school herself. So successful has DeVos been in sucking funding out of public schools in Michigan and passing it on to the charter schools that, to repeat this mind-bobbling statistic, 80% of the Detroit schools are now for-profit enterprises. The funding either comes from a rerouting of tax dollars from public to charter schools or as government payments, namely vouchers, paid to parents who then pass the money on to the charters. 
and Betsy DeVos is now positioned to do to the entire U.S. public system what she's done to Detroit. And here in Australia, we have seen Christopher Pine and now Birmingham pouring funding into the private sector and refusing to provide what has been recommended into the public system. Now, unless we deconstruct the narrative that privatised schools somehow have uncovered the secret to how humans learn and have a monopoly on the most effective ways to implement that knowledge, we're allowing false assertions to stand and believing the marketing line that charter schools challenge the public schools to do better is like believing that parasitic fungal spores will make wheat and oak trees stronger. And this, of course, has been the dog's position. We have always said in Australia that the religious schools and what they have produced and what they have done to our public system and to our democratic system with their lack of accountability and their class-based philosophy has been a cancer in our body politic. And Ray Nielsen has always said that they are, in fact, parasitic institutions. I'll read that again. Believing the marketing line that charter schools challenge the public schools to do better is like believing that parasitic fungal spores will make wheat and oak trees stronger. Diana Ravitch, uh, who has uh, promoted um, this on her blog and is a great promoter of public education in the United States, is in fact a born-again believer of uh, public education in the United States uh, and in any democracy because she has been involved in the private sector and seen exactly what they have done. Now, Robert is going to tell you about a gentleman John Oliver, who's very popular in the United States, and uh, you're going to hear him in a moment, but I'll pass over to Robert first. Thank you very much, Jane. You're listening to The Dogs Program here on 3CR, 855 on the AM dial. I think we'll pause now for a little bit of music, a bit of Wagner, and then we'll come back with the wise words of John Oliver from his show in the United States um, last week tonight. But um, let's have some Wagner first. Steuermann, which um, literally translates as the helmsman. Um, yeah, well, we don't have many of those in politics or education in Australia, so let's have a bit of music to inspire us to think about what it would be like to have one.
Welcome back to the Dogs Programme. A little bit of Richard Wagner, the chorus there from the Flying Dutchman, the Steuermann or Helmsman. Yes, you're listening to the Dogs Programme. We are the Defenders of Government Schools, D-O-G-S, Defenders of Government Schools. Um, and our, our fight has gone international. Uh, we've been on here on 3CR for many, many decades, but what we're doing in terms of educational policy discussion has now become very mainstream. So mainstream indeed that... Um, Serious commentators and comics from the United States have been picking up on what we've been talking about. Uh, now, John Oliver, um, for many of your listeners, you might be familiar or you might not, he's a British comedian, very popular in the United States, and he does monologues. Um, the monologue which you're about to hear, um, rebroadcast here on 3CR, 855 on the AM dial, is from one of his shows. Um, it has some swearing, which, we've, which we and he have already blanked out, um, because he gets quite passionate about what goes on over there, and he's discussing charter schools. Um, charter schools, um, in terms of an American context, that which is privately run but publicly funded, um, which is what happens here in Australia. Um, if you have a private school here in Australia, it is in fact privately run but publicly funded. The thing about charters is that they're not necessarily religious um, in the majority like they are here in Australia, although many of them are. Um, but they are private companies. They are businesses which set up um, educational institutions in the primary and secondary spheres. Here in Australia recently, we've had a functional disaster in our educational system, which will be felt through the generations. And it's already happened. It's happened on the dogs' watch. It's happened under our very noses. We were saying what was going to happen to start with, and it has. It has been a disaster, and it needs to be fixed. In the United States... Um, they have had exactly the same problems. And, of course, as Jean was saying, the new education secretary in the incoming Trump administration in the United States will be pushing ahead with charterising even more. But I've said a little bit too much. I think John Oliver can describe what's going on there at least as effectively as I can here in Australia. So passing over now then to John Oliver. Um, this is a uh, rebroadcast of a recording he made for his show, um, uh, this week, tonight. School. If Pink Floyd had gone to one, they'd have known it's we don't need any education. <laughs> you undermined your point. Now, it is, it's currently back to school season, and for millions, the school they'll be attending will be a charter school, the things that politicians love to praise. I called for a doubling of our investment in charter schools. I'm a big believer in charter schools. I believe in public Charter schools. Charter schools work, and they work very well. Charter schools are so successful that almost every politician can find something good to say about them. Yes, charter schools unite both sides of the aisle more quickly than when a wedding DJ throws on Hey Ya. Oh, look at Nana dancing. We can never let her know what this song is about. <laughs> Charters are basically public schools that are taxpayer-funded but privately run. Now, the first ones emerged 25 years ago as places to experiment with new educational approaches, and since then they've exploded. There are now over 6,700 charter schools educating almost 3 million students, and some have celebrity backers like Puff Daddy, Andre Agassi, and even Pitbull, who helped, <laughs> helped launch Miami's Slam Academy. He was a keynote speaker at a charter school conference in 2013, and his speech has not aged well for reasons that will become painfully clear. They told me that uh, Bill Cosby has spoken here before, which I think is amazing. Someone that I really relate to. I also love Jello, you know? Yes, yes. 
That does look bad now, but to be fair, it was not commonly known at the time that Jell-O was responsible for dozens of cases of sexual assault. <laughs> Turns out Jell-O is a monster. I think I'm legally okay to say that. The point is, f**k Jell-O. <laughs> and, and look, when Pitbull has a charter school, it seems like it might be worth taking a look at them. And first, let me acknowledge, this is a controversial area. Charter proponents will point to positive news stories like this one about the KIPP Charter Schools network. Most KIPP students are chosen by lottery, regardless of prior academic record. Almost all meet federal poverty guidelines. And yet 82% go on to college. I think one thing that I learned at KIPP really well is that a lot of your effort doesn't reap any um, success until way later in the future. Now, honestly, any philosophy that can get those kind of results might be worth considering. In the same way that if we found out they boosted our immunity, we'd seriously consider eating koalas. <laughs> but, but critics, critics argue charters overstate their successes, siphon off talented students and divert precious resources within the school districts. Now, for this piece, and I know this is going to make some people on both sides very angry, we're going to set aside whether or not charter schools are a good idea in principle. Because whether they are or not, in 42 states and D.C., we're doing them. So instead, we're going to look at how they operate in practice. One group found, on average, charters had a slight edge over traditional public schools in reading and did about the same in math, but acknowledged charter quality is uneven across the states and across schools. And that is putting it mildly. Because around the country, there have been charter schools so flawed, they don't make it through the school year. This charter school suddenly closed its doors in the middle of the day. An Orange County charter school suddenly closed its doors without notice. The local charter school is suddenly and unexpectedly closing its doors. On our dining room table, my son left these two notes to us. One says, Dear Mom, is the school going out of business? Yes, yes, you are right. That kid spelled business, biznos, which I'd argue is a much better way to spell it. Now, now that, that school was actually shut down just six weeks into the school year, so to be honest, they probably should have been much better at biznos. <laughs> and, and charters in some states can have an alarming failure rate. Two years ago, a Florida paper found that since 2008, 119 charter schools had closed there, 14 of which had never even finished their first school year. So 14 schools in Florida were outlasted by NBC's Mysteries of Laura. <laughs> A show which once ended an episode like this. I have a hot date tonight. With who? Threesome, actually. That's a threesome joke about her f***ing children. It was in the first season and they gave her another one. But the point is... When schools close that fast, it's shocking because you would assume someone would rigorously screen a school before it was allowed to open, making sure it was financially and academically sound. But that is not always the case. Take Florida's Ivy Academies, which shut down after just seven weeks due to a lack of, among other things, a school. The schools were repeatedly kicked out of their buildings, shuttled students among multiple sites, including the Signature Grand Reception Hall in Davie, two local churches in Fort Lauderdale and Holiday Park. They also bus students on daily field trips because they didn't have enough classrooms. Daily field trips? How's that even possible? Surely by day 10 you've run out of ideas and are taking kids to Marshalls to return a belt. Hey, pretty, pretty great, right, kids? I'll probably get store credit, so put on your adventure hats. We're about to go on a magical $12 scavenger hunt. 
So how did those schools get approved? Well, Florida's charter process begins with a lengthy application, and Ivy Academies was 400 pages long. And their founder, Trayvon Mitchell, included passages like this one, beginning, instruction is scaffolded to provide targeted support with the goal of increasing independence. It goes on, and it sounds great, but weirdly, we found this application by a school called Franklin Academy in Fort Lauderdale, which predates that by two years, and which features this passage, which begins, instruction will scaffold, and then continues in almost exactly the same way. It's basically identical, but for a few small differences, like the Olsen twins. I mean, you know, you know, one of them came first, and then Mary-Kate plagiarised her face. <laughs> now, that behaviour might not be illegal, but it's certainly unethical. Or, if I may quote from the Ivy Academy handbook, you will not plagiarise works that you find on the internet. <laughs> Plagiarism is taking the ideas or writings of others and presenting them as if they were yours. So the application for Mitchell's school would also have been grounds for him getting thrown out of that school. <laughs> and incidentally, that's not the only thing he may have stolen. He has since been accused of spending funds for students on himself and is awaiting trial for grand theft. And the problem with the approval process being too easy is... There is a lot at stake in charter schools. They get paid on a per-student basis. On average, that's about $7,000 for every enrolment. And that adds up. Take Philadelphia's Harambee Charter School. I know, I know, <laughs> they named it a long time ago. And it's spelled differently, you f***ing monsters. <laughs> Rest in peace. Now, that school, that school received more than five million dollars in taxpayer money uh, the same year that this story emerged. By day, the Harambee Institute Charter School looks like any other, educating some 450 students from kindergarten through eighth grade. But by night, the cafeteria turns into Club Damani, a bar that authorities say is unlicensed and illegal. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I had a couple of shots of rock. I'm drunk now. Wow! A nightclub in an elementary school is a recipe for disaster because those are the two most vomit-prone populations in the world. They must have had to Febreze the shit out of that place. Now, you'll be glad to hear uh, that that school's under new leadership now, although that might be because its CEO pled guilty to fraud for embezzling nearly $80,000 from the Harambee Institute. Rest in peace. And, and look, you can say that's an isolated incident, but it isn't. In Philadelphia alone, at least 10 executives or top administrators have pled guilty in the last decade to charges like fraud, misusing funds and obstruction of justice, which may be why Philly magazine advises parents, don't forget to Google any schools you're looking at to make sure they weren't once unexpectedly shut down or run by a CEO who pleaded guilty to theft. All of which speaks to a general atmosphere perhaps best articulated by the state auditor. I've said it before and I will say it again. Pennsylvania has the worst charter school law in the United States. That is not good, because it is not like having the worst something is new for Pennsylvania. <laughs> Remember, this is a state that has the worst football fans, the worst bell, and the worst regional delicacy. Yes. <laughs> if I wanted cheese whiz on my steak sandwich, I'd eat at Kitty Cafeteria, the restaurant run by six-year-olds. <laughs> And I'm not even sure Pennsylvania deserves to be called the worst because Ohio's charter law was for decades so lax, even charter advocates have called it the Wild West. 
The state has around 360 charters, and their governor, John Kasich, speaks often about how much he loves choice and competition in schools. We will improve the public schools if there's a sense of competition. It's just like a, a, a pizza shop in the town. If there's only one and, uh, and there's not much pepperoni on it, you can call till you're blue in the face. But the best way to get pepperoni, uh, more pepperoni on that pizza is to open up a second pizza shop. And that's what's going to improve our public schools. Okay. Okay. That doesn't work on any level. First, no one has ever called it a pizza shop. Second, it's a little hard to hear the man who just defunded Planned Parenthood talk about the importance of choice. Third, there's such a thing, there is such a thing as paying for extra pepperoni like a normal person. And finally, the notion that the more pizza shops there are, the better pizza becomes is effectively undercut by the two words Papa John's. But, but Ohio's charters have had huge problems with lack of oversight. A review of one year's state audits found charters misspent public money nearly four times more often than any other form of taxpayer-funded agency. And some cases are incredible, like that of Lisa Hamm, a school superintendent who was accused of spending money for her school on spas, jewellery, luggage, plays, veterinary care and trips to Europe and to see Oprah. <laughs> She took a plea deal without admitting guilt, but not before delivering this fantastic explanation. Proverbs says, without vision, people perish. And it's very important for people to have a vision for their own lives. And in order to do that, they need to experience what's possible in life. And in order to transfer that to the children, they have to experience it themselves. That is amazing. She's just spouting a bunch of vague bullshit about inspiration, crossing her fingers and hoping people will buy it. And you know what? When you put it like that, I feel like she has learned a lot from Oprah. Money well spent. <laughs> oh, and incidentally, for the record, when she quoted Proverbs saying, where there is no vision, the people perish, she, she's leaving out the very next line, which is, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. <laughs> and that's a f***ing important caveat. And what's crazy is, there are ways to profit off of charter schools perfectly legally in Ohio, and there have been for years. Look at this episode of Frontline from 2000. By law, charter schools must be non-profit, but the schools can hire an educational management company, or EMO, to run the school, and the EMO can try to make a profit. Brennan calls his EMO White Hat Management. Education is first, last, and always a business. If it's run like a business, it can be done profitably. Yes, education is first, last, and always a business. Take the L off the word learning, and what do you got? Earning. <laughs> Take the E off it, what do you got then? Arning. Yeah, sure, that's not a word, but it could be in one of our English classes. <laughs> now, that man's company, White Hat Management, worked under contracts where each charter would pay 95% or more of its government funding to White Hat, which, as a private company, isn't obligated to provide the same level of transparency as, say, a school district. So taxpayers could have little idea how that money was being spent. And who can say if that's a good system or not? All I know is White Hat ran 32 of the lowest-performing schools in the state. And if you do essentially the same terrible thing more than 30 times in a row, you're not a management company. You're basically Billy Joel's Greatest Hits Volumes 2 and 3. <laughs> And at this point, you may be thinking charters were completely unmonitored, but that is where you would actually be wrong. 
because they are uh, approved and overseen by what are called authorizers. And while some states sharply limit who can be an authorizer, Ohio allowed many different groups, including non-profits, to do it. Meaning, well, let's say I wanted to open the John Oliver Academy for Nervous Boys. <laughs> and, and let's say I had a pre-existing non-profit called Johnny's Kids. That could potentially have overseen my school. And that basically happened. Take the Richard Allen chain of schools in Ohio, whose president was a woman called Jeanette Harris. They were overseen by Kids Count, a non-profit founded by Jeanette Harris, which oversaw the schools as they spent a million tax dollars on management and consulting firms founded by, wait for it, Jeanette f***ing Harris. Now, Harris denies a conflict of interest because she claims she wasn't directly involved in decision-making, and maybe, maybe the schools just chose Kids Count because it had a proven track record of great oversight. So let's, let's just check in on one of the other schools they oversaw. A local charter school padded its attendance records, resulting in more than a million dollars in extra money. State auditors interviewed students and staff. Their findings show that on any given day, there would only be about 30 students in the building, a fraction of the reported 459 enrolled there. Oh, it gets worse, because when an auditor looked into it, they found Kids Count had done the legal minimum oversight required, which I would argue suggests a problem with the legal minimum, because 30 kids showed up and the school claims they had 450, which doesn't speak well of an oversight group calling itself Kids Count. <laughs> now, now, Ohio has passed a new law to try and clean up some of the problems you've seen. But serious damage has already been done. And incredibly, there is one more way that charter schools around the country have been allowed to run wild. Because we haven't even mentioned online charters yet. They serve 180,000 students. And even if they just get the average $7,000 per student, that's over a billion dollars in taxpayer money going to cyber charters annually. And some have an attendance system you would not f***ing believe. Sometimes kids aren't counted absent until they have failed to log on for five days in a row. And some are never required to attend class. But the state still requires the schools to report attendance. So most just report 100%, even though that's not what's really going on. That's just crazy. You're basically giving kids a box containing video games, pornography and long division and claiming 100% of them chose the right one. <laughs> and, and look... Some kids might need online education, but it has got to be monitored better because one major study found compared to kids in traditional public schools, students in online charters lost the equivalent of 72 days of learning and reading and 180 days in math during the course of a 180-day school year. And 180 minus 180 is, as those kids might put it, three. <laughs> now, charter advocates will tell you that even they are concerned about online schools. And they'll argue some states have much better oversight than the ones that we've seen. And that is true. Though, for the record, some may even be worse. One charter researcher told Ohio, be very glad that you have Nevada so you are not the worst. <laughs> Which I believe is the motto on Nevada state license plates. <laughs> but the point is, we don't even have time to get into Nevada. And advocates will argue all these closings show accountability in action. Just like in business, bad schools close. But there's a f***ing problem there, as one former charter school employee explains. 
This isn't just a regular business. This isn't a restaurant that you just open up, you serve your food, people don't like it, you close it, and you move on. This is education. This is students are getting left in the middle of the year without a school to go to. So I just think that there needs to be some filter as to who's opening up these charter schools. Exactly. The problem with letting the free market decide when it comes to kids is that kids change faster than the market. And by the time it's obvious a school is failing, futures may have been ruined. So if we are going to treat charter schools like pizza shops, we should monitor them at least as well as we do pizzerias. It's like the old saying, give a kid a shitty pizza, you f*** up their day. <laughs> treat a kid like a shitty pizza, you could f*** up their entire life. Well, yes, uh, John Oliver here on the Dogs Program. Um, yeah, thankfully, um, yes, uh, we have to acknowledge exactly what he's doing. That was actually a rebroadcast from a recording made previously on his show um, last week tonight. Um, and we'll be moving on to discuss exactly the consequences of what he's talking about quite amusingly um, in the Australian context after these messages. you got to remember, Nanoc's a special day for us, fellas. That's a reminder who we are. Every year for NAIDOC Week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am a black, black man. NAIDOC means a lot to me. It's about identity and also about past and present. NAIDOC means a lot to me for my family and my people. And the people forgetting about our rights. You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison broadcasts. Happy NAIDOC! Welcome back, ladies, gentlemen, and dear listeners uh, to the Dogs Program. We are the defenders of government schools here on 3CR, 855 on the AMD, AM, AM dial, AM spectrum, um, or indeed podcast, if that's the way you're listening, um, either in the car or on the computer. Um, we are the defenders of government schools. And what he's talking about there, Mr. John Oliver over in the United States, is charter schools, functionally privately run businesses funded by the public purse. Um, and in Australia, we have a very sort of, we have a slightly different, but not too different context. Certainly in the TAFE sector, all the problems he's suggesting are going on have already happened here in Australia. The whole thing's just a complete mess. In fact, it's such a mess that the kids aren't enrolling. Uh, the, kids aren't, the kids are too scared to enrol in technical and further education in Australia because they think quite rightly that the school might close or it's a dodgy deal. I mean, we are literally dumbing down our our, our vocational education processes in Australia. We've already done it, and um, Mr Birmingham's got a big problem, and he's not addressing it. In fact, if you think about it, I mean, he's saying that the problem is that the privatised operators have done the wrong thing, so we need to oversight them more. In fact, John Oliver's saying the same thing. Okay. I actually go and say, look, hang on, hang on. You've got a business, and their business is making money, and we've got an education system uh, the purpose of an education system is to educate people, not necessarily to make money. So those two things are competing to start with. Um, Birmingham saying, well, we need to have greater oversight. I said, no, no, don't give money to people who, <laughs> who don't want to use it to educate people. Um, don't give money to private operators because that's not what they want to do. They want to make money. 
if you give them money, they want to take that money and they want to spend it on something else. They don't want to educate people. Educating people is just part of a process they have to deal with, otherwise um, they won't get the money in the first place. How well it's done is of no concern to them. It's like, you know, if you give money to a property developer and you say, you can do whatever you like with this particular property and, and do whatever you like, there's no rules, there's no oversight, take, take, take the land and do whatever you like. The developer will do exactly that. He'll build the cheapest houses possible. If they fall down in three years' time, he doesn't care. He yeah. or she, I should say. I mean, just don't give it to them in the first place. Um, don't, don't give the developer the land with, with no strings and don't give the money to businesses to educate the, the, the children and people of Australia. Give it to educators. Give it, give it to an organisation which is directly responsible to a minister and then the minister is directly responsible to the people. And if they stuff it up, the minister gets sacked. Birmingham, the federal minister, should, should, should just resign. Like, if, if he's overseen it, he just should resign. It's just very simple. But he doesn't. Blaming the Labor Party, Robert. Well, no, but functionally he says, well, it's not my fault. It's the dodgy private operators. And he's right. It is the dodgy private operators. But you're the one that gave them the money. So you're the one responsible. But I'd like to take a little tangent um, because Chris Bonner, who often contributes to the dogs program, has written a very interesting article. Um, not not necessarily about the public-private thing, but he gets into a, I think, funda- more fundamental issue about schools, about schools that are deemed to be successful. In Australia, of course, we have this wonderful idea about the Australian character that Australians, as a nation, collectively punch above their weight. This idea that we are... We are a small nation and that we contribute you know, in, in a way that outweighs our smallness. We, we punch above our weight. Well, in cricket or in football or whatever. You know, it's just in, in, in education or in research, and people always talk about Australians punching above their weight. And this idea, sort of this, this, this strange phrase, gets, gets, gets bandied about a lot in education. So you'll have a school which is punching above its weight. Now, Chris Bonner's got something to say about these schools that punch above their weight and, in fact, tries to dig down into why certain schools succeed and why certain schools do not. And he said in an article posted oh, just a couple of days ago, um, um, in an article posted um, on uh, John Menadue's blog, actually, johnmenadue.com, he wrote, he said, look, put your hand up if you're a participant in the festive season, not the Christmas stuff, the New Year's stuff. He's talking about the annual festival of the HSC or the VCE results, which have just passed in November. Mm-hmm. He says, you may have searched to see where your old school, perhaps, or your kids or your grandkids' schools ranked in the hierarchy of success or otherwise. For many people, it joins real estate values to sustain the endless dinner table conversations around the nation as we have our Christmas dinners. Not ours. Or, or maybe no, you didn't bother. Yeah, no, maybe you didn't bother. After all, the results and the media reporting of schools um, that, that rise and fall has been much the same from year to year. In New South Wales, back in 2009, um, James Roos Agricultural School was in a class of its own. And in 2011, um, the private schools were all but vanquished from the top 10 list of schools in New South Wales. In 2014, um, the articles were around boys proving that they too could be educated and were all-rounders. Now, each of these reports in the last you know, five, six, ten years is accompanied often by quotes from principals of the schools which gain honourable mentions, putting their performance down to this or that outstanding practice or process indeed, Jean. Mm. 
and for Redham House uh, in 2016, which is a successful year. Apparently it was successful because the teacher's relationship with the students was, was very, very good. Nothing is actually said about Redham's changing enrolment profile, such that now at Redham, uh, just 1% of the enrolment comes from the most disadvantaged quartile of the population. Oh. Or how much public money goes into the school. Yes, indeed. Now, for all schools, there are stories about the results that rarely get told. Or if they are told, they're told badly. <laughs> A large portion of the results come not from what schools do, but from the families behind each student. Now, um, Chris uh, regularly matches up the top 100 VCE schools against the top 100 ranked by each school's level of socioeconomic advantage. Mm -hmm. Two-thirds of the schools in the first list are usually in the second. Mm -hmm. As for public-private school differences, these orbits vanish. There's, there aren't any when schools' enrolments, like schools' similarity enrolment profiles for education and wealth of their families are taken into account. But, but media coverage, actually, in the last year or two is improving. Last year, and again this year, in the Sydney Morning Herald, they actually matched HSC results against each school's level of socioeconomic advantage. The latter is published each year on the MySchool website. Now, in 2015, Sydney Morning Herald's headline was The Real Star Performers of This Year's HSC. Now, the new hero schools are not the top 100 but those that were, and here we get this phrase, punching above their weight. Scoring results that defined their relatively low level of socioeconomic advantage. Politicians especially just love these schools. And I know, because when I was in England, I taught in one of these schools, and Tony Blair used to come and visit us every couple of weeks when he was the, when he was the Prime Minister. You know, politicians love these schools and quickly follow up with narratives about how, how any school can be like these punching above their weight schools, and it isn't about the money. Mm. You know, in 2015, it was schools like Narendra High, you know, Coonabannabran, Canley Vale, Canterbury Girls, Strathfield Girls, Moira College, Loretto and more. The apparent laggards, on the other hand, included St Andrew's Cathedral School. Oh, I used to hang out there. Sydney Grammar, Mossman High and Hunters Hill High. All these schools feature on the better or the worse side of a trend line of the Herald's scattergraph. You too can find where your school lies if you read the Sydney Morning Herald. But in 2016, that paper reported on how Sydney is actually divided by a line which they call the Latte Line, with the high achievers on the northeast, the more affluent side, of Sydney, and the low achievers on the southwest, less affluent side. But again, some schools emerged as performing above their level of a socioeconomic or socioeducational advantage, and others below. The performers included a clutch of schools in the Liverpool area and the Malik Fad Islamic School. Those apparently underachieving also included a swag of both public and private schools. But this is where Chris gets interesting. There is a problem. The ICSIA index scale, which is the socio-educational advantage scale on the Moscow website, is very useful for comparing large groups of schools, i.e. location by sector. But it's actually far less reliable as a tool to use to compare and jump to conclusions about individual schools. Malik Fad, a school that, in the words of the City Morning Herald report, defined by its, or defied, I should say, its postcode, illustrates the problem. So let's look at that school. 
Now, the information about this Malik Fad Islamic school provided by the school suggests the ordinary school is doing extraordinary things. So, is it punching above its weight? Unlikely. The students enrolled in Year 7 each year are chosen, and I quote, based on interview, academic and behavioural reports, as well as results of a selective exam undertaken in the year previous to the enrolment. It's a selective Muslim school. It is. Like St Kevin's is a selective Selective Catholic school. Yes, indeed. Well, Christian, Catholic, whatever. Um, What isn't reported is that, actually, as Chris says, this is effectively a selective school, enrolling higher-achieving students who would otherwise enrol in other schools. It's highly likely that the staff do do a wonderful job. But, like all selective schools, regardless of sector, and there are many more than we think, it is punching not above its weight. It's actually punching the other schools in the local area as much as punching above its own weight. And this is a school that was nearly closed down because there was some funny business going on with all the money that was going into the Central Administrative Group of the Muslim Faith in Australia. Hmm. Yes, Interesting. It is. The information about this school... Yes, as I said. But but to some extent, enrolment selectivity is reflected in each school's ICSIA value, but not to the extent needed for accurate comparisons. And this is where Chris makes a very good point. It might surprise some people, certainly not the listeners to this program, but some people, but bright kids can come from poor families. There you go, I've said it. I've said it. They actually can come from poor families. Bright kids can come from poor families. And as the research that Chris conducted with Bernie Shepherd certainly shows a drift of students from low SEAs to higher SEA schools, this actually compounds the advantage of the higher schools. So poor, smart kids are poached in ways not well known yet or indeed measured. Now, school principals in the high schools know the bonus of a school results created by combining high expectations, rigorous curriculum, resources and strong social and cultural capital – created by sought-after, motivated students, whether they're poor or rich. These schools don't have to punch above their weight. The weight just shifts to benefit them in ways insufficiently measured by the MySchool website. Now, MySchool is imprecise in other ways. Um, It doesn't take into account the gender balance in each school's enrolment, and they don't because NAPLAN schools do show a small but measurable lift for girls. Girls' schools, in particular, seem to be prominent in the HSC punches above their weight. Nor does the website seriously attempt to take into account the compounded advantage for schools which manage to harvest aspirant and advantaged students. Finally, when the ICSIA values of Liverpool area schools are relatively low, they do enrol, as one school principal acknowledged, students from a very aspirational local community. Now, Chris has more to say about this, but there's, there's an interesting comment, I think, um, in, in response to this particular article um, from, a more, from a woman called Jean from West Melbourne. And I think it's actually worth reading out Jean's comment. Um, she says, bravo, Chris. Bravo, bravo, Chris Bonham. This last sentence that Chris mentioned says it all. Now, Chris's last sentence was, maybe we could go back to the beginning and revisit why we have schools. Who should they serve, and how do they really know whether or not they are succeeding for students, for families, and for the nation? And Jean from West Melbourne says, that sentence says it all. 
For the last half century, says Jean, since the advent of taxpayers' funding for private schools, there has been a refusal to discuss the objectives of our nation's educational system. Academics and policymakers, principals and politicians, time and again, have avoided the real problems like the plague. Process, in quotes, talk is cheap and safe for the risk-averse. Until recently, many fell back on statistics as a safe option. But the statistics are now finally adding up. Those who, in the 19th century, confronted the issues that we're currently refusing to solve had no worries with objectives talk. They knew what they wanted, and that was a system for a democracy, an education for every child, and that bringing children was the only hope they had of avoiding the sectarian and class-based problems of the, that were plaguing the old world. Men like Parks, Ingus Clark and Higgins understood the relationship between educational opportunity, separation of religion and the state, and free, secular, compulsory and universal education and the kind of enlightened polity they wished to foster. When will, when will even the supporters of needs policies, all of which have failed, by the way, over the years, realise that you can't have any semblance of equality of opportunity if any educational institution this taxpayer-funded can turn any child away from its gates for any reason whatsoever. The dogs told this to the Carmel Commission in 1973, but a Carmel and indeed Jean Blackburn, like so many of that generation, lacked the intestinal fortitude to bite that bullet. And so, here in 2016, here we are with glaring inequalities and declining international standards that were just so predictable. Now, I would add to that this whole idea of punching and competition. Competition being the sort of buzzword for success in education. I think it's the opposite. I think it's obvious that, that the recipe for success is the, obvious to, is the opposite of competition. Because if... Systems compete with systems, and schools compete with schools, and children compete with children, and everyone's punching everyone else, then you're going to have winners and losers. Sure, some kids win, and today there are some kids that are just born into a winning. But and there you seem have to be losers. some that are punching bags for the, uh, for the politicians and others. Because it's not about punching above your weight in a closed system like an education process for an entire country. If you're punching in an education system, you're not punching up. You're not punching out. You're punching someone else. You're punching the kids. that are, You're fighting the kids that are the losers. And Parks and Higgins and Clark knew that... If you're going to set up a system, you don't set up a system for winners and losers. You set up a system for all. Because a child, a four-year-old, a five-year-old, a six-year-old, a 12-year-old, a 15-year-old, a child who needs an education, it's not about punching. It's about giving them an opportunity. That's exactly what we're not doing here in Australia, and that's exactly what we're fighting for here at the Defenders of Government Schools. Here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial, if you're interested in what we've been talking about, um, of course you can go to the 3CR website, but you can also go to the DOGS website at www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. But until that time, until next week, it's bye for now. I 
dreamed I saw Joe here last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe says I, him standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I'm dead, says Joe, but I'm dead. The copper bosses killed you, Joe, they shot you, Joe, says I, takes more than guns to kill a man. Says Joe, I didn't die. Says Joe, I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill, went on to organize. Went on to organize From San Diego up to Maine In every mine and mill Where workers strike and organize It's there you find your hill It's there you find Says he.